You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. A Tri-Cities woman is speaking out tonight about a terrifying taxi ride that threw her daily routine way off. On a recent trip, she says she noticed the Bel Air taxi driver never started the meter. Catherine Urquhart explains what happened next that ended in a police report. You're hot. As someone with mobility challenges, Gail Hunter depends on taxis, but she's now scared to use them after, she claims, a cabbie took her hostage. But I was really shook up. The Port Coquitlam woman says she took a Bel Air cab May 24th to her job at Birchland Elementary. She says the driver failed to turn on the meter and tried to overcharge. When she mentioned she could give him nothing before offering $7, he snapped. So I said to him, where are we taking me? And he said, I don't have to take you there. And I said, no, you need to turn around now. And he's saying, no. No, I can take you anywhere. I can take you home. I said, you're not taking me home. You're not taking me. Now he's not even going the direction of my house. Gail's usual seven-minute cab ride, a 15-minute nightmare. The cabbie was investigated by the RCMP, who say no criminal charges are being pursued. Bel Air officials wouldn't talk. So no comment at all? No. Okay. Last year, a disabled woman was left waiting three hours in the rain for a Bel Air cab. Mayor Richard Stewart clearly fed up. Well, it's incredibly frustrating. We've worked with this cab company, a group of companies, repeatedly to try to make them make sure they all understand that that's not on, that, that Coquitlam residents won't be treated uh, badly by the monopoly that is our taxi service. Gail hopes there will soon be ride-sharing options. Her recent taxi experience leaving her worried for herself and others. I have more concern because I work with vulnerable people, with children. If that was a child in that cab and he's that aggressive, what would have happened? Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Now to Surrey, where RCMP are investigating a disturbing assault on a high school student. The teen allegedly lured into an isolated area on school property where he was taunted and attacked by a group of older students. Ramina Dea is live in our newsroom with more on this right now. And Ramina, first a warning, some people are going to find this disturbing. Part of it was caught on video. It is disturbing, Chris. The victim's father tells us he's horrified. He says when he found out about the attack, it was on social media. It was not from his son. He then posted it, though, on his Facebook page because he says parents need to know what's happening at school. That's what you get for snitching, bro. I didn't snitch. You snitch, bro. Kiss my right now. Kiss that shit. The incident happened Monday behind Fraser Heights Secondary in Surrey. Paul Peterson tells Global News his son was lured out of school by a friend, led into the forest where he was surrounded and then forced on his knees by someone holding a baton. Peterson says his son was told to kiss the attacker's shoe and then he was kicked in the head area. Peterson says the attack was in retaliation to an incident his son had nothing to do with. On Friday, there was a fight between two groups, apparently 
apparently over a girl. The school district says one student suffered minor injuries. Surrey RCP confirmed that an airsoft handgun or pellet gun was found and they are investigating whether any of the incidents are linked. I'm scared. I'm worried that my kid is going to have to deal with further backlash and retribution and or more violence. Um, I'm afraid to, you know, for the security of the rest of my family. Once uh, the school was alerted to it this morning, uh, uh, called police immediately uh, to alert them to it and launched their own investigation. And uh, fortunately, the boy wasn't seriously hurt. And uh, it's unfortunate that the video is, is public, but uh, we're uh, following up to do what we can to find out what uh, went on and who's, uh, who's responsible. Now, police say it's early in the investigation. They're still trying to identify who's involved. It's unclear if charges will be late. Chris. All right, Ramina, thank you. Well, the families of two teens who were found fatally shot in Surrey are making an emotional appeal for information. The bodies of 17-year-old Jess Karen Jesse Bungal and 16-year-old Jess Karen Jason Jetty were found on a rural road one year ago today. Grace Key has more on their last known movements and the unanswered questions. They're here to make an emotional plea. The families of Jason Jutty and Jazzy Bangle both describe the heartache of losing their loved ones. This past year without him has been dark and full of pain. I now realize that I didn't just lose my baby brother, but I lost a piece of myself which I could never get back. It was one year ago when the two teens were shot and killed. Their bodies found on a rural road by 192nd Street and 40th Avenue in Surrey. They were last seen alive playing basketball with some friends. Police say it was a targeted gang-related shooting, though the two have no gang connections and were not known to police. Their killers are still out there. It only takes one or two phone calls from the right person with the right information to significantly advance a homicide investigation. If you have kids, if you have a brother, if you have a sister, you should be scared. Just 17 and 16 years old, their murder sparked a call to action within the South Asian community and the creation of Wake Up Surrey, a grassroots movement to bring attention to gang violence, a subject discussed in the Jutty home. Jason had no criminal record or even interaction with police. It seemed as if we were doing everything right as parents and as older siblings. The families should be preparing for their son's high school graduations. Instead, they're appealing for justice. Our family was looking forward to seeing what the future had in store for him. Unfortunately, we will not get to see my baby brother grow into the man that he deserved to become. He was only 16 years old. He was just a child. No parent should ever have to spend their life wondering what could have happened, what could have possibly happened in their child's final moments. Anyone with information is asked to call IHIT or Crime Stoppers if you want to remain anonymous. Grace Key, Global News. There was a court appearance today for the man accused of killing Burnaby teenager Marissa Shen back in 2017. 28-year-old Ibrahim Ali is charged with first-degree murder in connection with Shen's death. Ali is a Syrian refugee who police say arrived in Canada just three months before 13-year-old Shen was found murdered in a Burnaby park. Today, a day was set for a preliminary hearing that's now scheduled to take place November 25th.
Well, a man charged in connection with a violent sexual assault that allegedly began at an East Vancouver bus stop was in court today for a bail hearing. Aaron MacArthur has more on his appearance and why little is known about why a decision has been delayed. The bail hearing for 59-year-old Cho Wing Ma will continue next week. Thanks to a broad publication ban, I'm unable to tell you anything about what happened inside the court this morning or the reason for the delay, but I can tell you it was an emotional scene inside the courtroom. Ma's family on hand to offer their support to the 59-year-old. Ma making an appearance in person and through the use of a Cantonese translator listening to the arguments of both Crown and Defence on the bail application. Ma stands accused of sexual assault and robbery in relation to an incident in East Vancouver last month. A woman complained to the VPD that she was followed home from a bus stop near 41st and Earls and then assaulted inside her home nearby. VPD put out a surveillance picture of the prime suspect in the case and a few days later Ma was arrested and then charged with sexual assault and robbery. In the meantime, Ma will remain in custody. His next court appearance scheduled for Monday morning at 9.30. Back to you. All right, thanks, Aaron. Improperly stored linseed oil rags caused a major fire in a West End high-rise over the weekend. Today, Vancouver Fire and Rescue explained what they believe happened and offered some tips on how you can avoid a similar situation. Oh, no. From down below, it was a scary sight. Flames shooting from the balcony of a West End high-rise, plumes of black smoke filling the sky. I saw flames coming out quite far from, from the apartment that the fire started. Then it spread to the apartment above. The call came in just before 5 Sunday evening. Reports of smoke from a building in the 1200 block of Pacific Avenue in Vancouver. Firefighters arrived and a third alarm was quickly called in. High-rises present some of the most challenging circumstances for our crews to fight fires. Despite the challenges, they quickly knocked it down. We now know the cause of the fire. And contrary to speculation from folks in the neighborhood, it has nothing to do with a barbecue. What we found in our investigation was that uh, it was improperly stored uh, linseed oil rags, which were used to stain furniture. Just like that, the rags created enough heat that they caught on fire. Linseed oil is often used to treat wood surfaces, and it's also a self-heating oil. In this case, rags soaked with linseed oil were rolled up in a ball, left on top of cardboard, which was sitting on wood decking on a hot Sunday afternoon. When you do that with a self-heating oil that has self-heating properties, it can't release the heat that's generated as the product starts to dry. You'll get temperatures 4 to 500 degrees Fahrenheit within that rag, at which time it will start to ignite. The best way to properly dispose of the rags is to spread them out on a non-flammable surface where there's good ventilation. Once dried, the rags can be thrown out. If you want to keep them, store them in a bucket filled with water. A handful of residents were displaced by the fire, but no one was injured. Now to historic Global News. May real estate numbers are out, and they show the market is still sliding. According to the Real Estate Board of Greater Vancouver, last month's sales numbers totaled 2,638. That's down almost 7% from May of last year, and almost 23% below the 10-year May sales average. 
That's also the lowest total for the month of May since 2000, which is traditionally one of the busiest sales months. Meantime, the average amount of money spent on renos is also declining. According to a new report from CIBC, while nearly half of Canadians plan on renovating their home this year, they'll be spending about $800 less than the $10,000 yearly average. That's a six-year low. Of those planning to renovate, most say they'll be focusing more on necessary repairs. Well, parents will often pay a hefty price to send their children to private school in this province. Those schools also receive public funding. But according to a new poll, most British Columbians are opposed to taxpayer money and subsidies going to private schools. Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more on the poll and what kind of money we're talking about here, Keith. Yeah, a substantial amount of money, uh, Sophie. So anytime the BC teachers are in contract negotiations, you can be sure the issue of how education is funded is going to rise to the surface. So two public education advocacy groups got insights west to poll British Columbians on their attitudes of tax dollars going to private schools. And there's a number of different type of private schools, of course. So here's the breakdown of the public reaction. I think the numbers are surprisingly high in terms of opposition. 78% uh, oppose funding of so-called elite private schools. 66% oppose funding of secular private schools. 69% oppose funding of faith-based private schools. That's the majority of private schools, actually, are faith-based ones. Now, in terms of how much money we're spending on private schools, the figures go up from year to year. So several years ago, uh, you can see it was $358 million. It's been rising steadily, even under the NDP's term in government, to the current 437, or projected 437 next year. So the, the increase is starting to slow. Nevertheless, the numbers are going up. We caught up to Education Minister Rob Fleming today. Didn't really want to address the issue of why the NDP continues to fund private schools. Here's his response. I think what that poll speaks to is that British Columbians, after a long time, you know, 16 years of underfunding the public education system, that there's concerns about the well-being of our schools. Parents have choices in British Columbia. It's been that way for decades in BC. It's part of our tradition. Uh, but I think for many parents that want to have a high degree of confidence in public education, and they should. So don't look for the NDP government to reverse course here. As Rob Fleming mentioned, this has been the policy for decades. There's also religious freedom issues involved here. And again, the extent is, is extensive, uh, the expense of private schools. 367 schools and almost 90,000 kids in those schools. They're not going to be absorbed in the public system, uh, I think, anytime soon or even in far into the future. All right, Keith, thanks for that. Right now, though, residents in Okanagan Falls are frustrated by news they're losing their only grocery store. The IGA has been in operation there for 21 years, but come September, it will be closing its doors. Global's Shelby Tom explains why, for some, it'll make buying groceries more difficult and the potential impact to the local economy. Residents in Okanagan Falls will soon be starved of a local grocery store with the looming closure of IGA. We're just really upset because it's the best corner store ever. Parent company Georgia Main Food Group blames the closure on declining customer counts and correlating sales over the past several years. Historically, the prices have gone up and, and the pricing relates to the customers. Those that do shop here are worried about the impact on seniors with mobility challenges. It's not going to be good for, for anyone that lives here and especially our elderly. An affordable housing complex for independent seniors is under construction nearby. They're all going to come and move in here and if some of them don't have vehicles, well, they're going to have to, we're going to have to try and get them to town to get their groceries. 
some are concerned about potential job losses in the small town of 2500. The company says 25 people are on staff and opportunities will be offered at other locations. Some employees are retiring. Still, some feel it's a blow to the local economy, coming after the suspension of a mega cannabis production facility that was expected to create hundreds of jobs in OK Falls. The economy itself is suffering as is, um, not only here but in other parts of the Okanagan as well, but I think it will be a little bit of a, a detriment to the society, to the community itself. There's nothing here really for jobs. I don't know what people are, the young people, what... I don't know what they're going to do. But the government representative for the area points to the burgeoning wine industry and manufacturer Structure Lamb as thriving job creators. And if you go back 10 years ago, it was awful, and it stayed pretty bad for quite a long time. Uh, recently, the last year, two years, it's been much better. Even right now, it's very good. As for IGA customers, they have until September 10th to fill their carts. Shelby Tom, Global News, Okanagan Falls. A new report from an expert panel with an ominous name is calling for a fundamental change in our mental health care strategy. The Death Review Panel looked at the cases of people who died during or within 24 hours after contact with police. Its report says changes need to be made to prevent needless tragedies. <laughs> When a man walked naked down Scott Road last month, jumping onto and then inside a car, Delta police relied on their mental health and crisis assessment training to resolve the incident peacefully. And our officers de-escalated the situation and took him into custody very safely without any use of force. The situation, while very public, was among one of many mental health emergencies the department faces each year. We're looking at about 12% of our calls are mental health. When we talk specifically about youth, though, about 18% of our calls are mental health. So we're, we're very cautious of that and trying to understand exactly what that means for us in the Delta Police Department. Across the province, police field 74,000 calls annually related to mental health. It's part of the reason the coroner service recently studied the issue. It's not something that's going away. I mean, police, you know, for, for a long time have, have noted that um, mental health has been um, a, a growing part uh, of their work. The coroner service convened a panel of experts to examine the deaths of 127 people who had contact with police in the 24 hours before dying. They found two-thirds struggled with mental health issues, addictions, or both. The key piece here is, is the need um, to bring uh, policing in as, as part of a recognized under the mental health strategy, mental health and addiction strategy for the province. The report recommends improving access to mental health assessments and using data from previous police encounters to help with officer training. Tanya Beja, Global News. A tongue-in-cheek news release from North Vancouver RCMP today as they try to find the owner of what they describe as a very boring wallet with one special characteristic that makes it a little less boring. That's right. It was found on May 2nd at Capilano Mall, described as black and leather and foldable, remarkably generic, according to the police. No ID cards or any other documents inside. The less boring part, though, it did have a lot of cash inside, although police aren't saying exactly how much. That's one of the things the rightful owner will have to tell them to get it back. Nothing in the wallet. It was completely empty except for the cash. So if 
the owner can tell us perhaps uh, how much money, what the denominations are, where they may have uh, left their wallet in the mall, and if there is another way they could verify or prove that they were actually in the mall on May the 2nd, uh, sometime before 1.30, uh, then you may be able to convince us that it's yours. If you can correctly answer those skill-testing questions, get a hold of North Vancouver RCMP. Very cleverly written, though. We give them credit for the, for the writing in the release. It Looks was like fun. your wallet. A little. Dramatic new developments tonight in the investigation into last year's Parkland School massacre in Florida. The deputy who was criticized for not entering the school during the shooting now faces 11 criminal charges relating to his alleged inaction. Tonight, former Deputy Scott Peterson, who retreated during the Parkland mass shooting, is himself in handcuffs under arrest. Peterson charged with seven counts of child neglect, three counts of culpable negligence, one count of perjury. The indictment saying in part, Deputy Peterson failed to make a reasonable effort to protect the students, refusing to move towards the sound of gunfire, refusing to seek out, confront, or engage the shooter. Peterson was called a coward by the former Broward sheriff after security cameras revealed the former school resource officer lingering outside the school building as a former student turned alleged gunman was inside on a killing spree. Fourteen students and three staff members were killed in the Valentine's Day carnage last year. Among them, 14-year-old Alyssa Al-Hadef her mother today. He needs to go to jail and he needs to serve a lifetime in prison for not going in that day and taking down the threat and that led to the death of our loved ones. Former student survivor Kyle Kashuv on Twitter today. It was his responsibility and he failed us all. It's not true. I did a lot of things on that scene. Peterson was unavailable for comment today, but in an exclusive interview with Savannah Guthrie last year, he said he did nothing wrong. Right. I have my gun out and I'm scanning and I'm looking, and that's what we're trained to do. When you, when you get a position of cover, we are trained to scan and look. But after the Columbine massacre, law enforcement agencies changed their tactical standards, instructing officers to immediately pursue a campus gunman. Tonight, representatives for Peterson say they will vigorously defend against the charges. Kerry Sanders, NBC News. A tale of two cities tonight, three decades after a politically motivated massacre. A stirring sight in Hong Kong as tens of thousands gathered for the 30th anniversary of China's bloody crackdown on pro-democracy demonstrators in Tiananmen Square. There were flowers and a minute of silence for the hundreds and possibly thousands who were killed by Chinese troops. The vigil is an annual event in Hong Kong, a semi-autonomous territory whose own civil liberties are constantly threatened by communist China. It was a different story, though, in Beijing, where the Chinese flag was raised above Tiananmen Square today as usual. The difference this year, police were everywhere, making sure no one tried to stage any memorial or demonstration. The Chinese government has worked to erase the memory of the crackdown to the point where many Chinese young people don't even know what happened. Donald Trump wrapping up his contentious official visit to the UK by tempering his remarks somewhat, even praising outgoing Prime Minister Theresa May. The diplomatic niceties playing out as anti-Trump protests, complete with the infamous baby Trump balloon, raged outside. Thousands spilling into the streets of London, protests 
and politics replacing the pageantry of President Trump's arrival. Thank you very much for joining us today. As he joins Prime Minister Theresa May and his daughter and advisor Ivanka for a roundtable business discussion. I think we'll have a very, very substantial trade deal. Day two of his controversial state visit continuing at 10 Downing Street. Delegations from both countries sitting down as the president and outgoing prime minister hold what is very likely their last official meeting. As we've deepened our cooperation on security, including our joint military operations and our unparalleled intelligence sharing, so our economies too are ever more tightly bound together. As the UK makes preparations to exit the European Union, the United States is committed to a phenomenal trade deal. The, the politics are much less civil as protesters march across central London, delivering a very different message to the visiting U.S. leader. Well, we're here protesting against Trump because uh, we don't really think he should have been invited here in the first place. We all need to try and stand up against his tyranny. Far removed from the signs and shouting, President Trump and the First Lady end their day royally, hosting members of the royal family at a reciprocal dinner in Winfield House, home of the U.S. ambassador here. Jay Gray, NBC News, London. In health matters tonight, the federal government is giving leading-edge B.C. researchers more money to fight cervical cancer. Ten million dollars over five years will support research by the Women's Health Research Institute at B.C. Women's Hospital. Cervical cancer is one of the most preventable and treatable cancers, but more than 1,500 Canadian women are diagnosed with it every year, and an estimated 400 die from it. The research here will examine how effective one dose of HPV vaccine is among girls who've already been vaccinated, review how effective the HPV vaccine is in British Columbia, and improve access to cervical cancer screening by piloting an HPV self-collection program among rural, indigenous, and new Canadian women, and demonstrate the suitability and feasibility of an online platform to improve screening among indigenous women. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, brace yourself for a generous dose of cuteness made all the more memorable for its contribution to conservation. Langley's Northern Spotted Owl Breeding Program is celebrating the birth of four chicks and another big step in rebuilding the population of one of Canada's most endangered species. Linda Aylesworth reports. So this is our rodent building. To be more exact, a rodent breeding building. These are all rats along this side, and then these are all of our mice. Cute if you're into this sort of thing, but don't get attached. This guy's probably about 38 grams, so they'll eat. he needs to get a little bit bigger before he would be considered dinner. Yeah. <laughs> the diners, northern spotted owls. With only six left in the wild, they are among the rarest, most endangered birds in Canada. It relies on about 200-year-old forests to survive in the wild. So in BC, unfortunately, that type of habitat just isn't really around anymore. Which is why in 2007, the Northern Spotted Owl Breeding Program, the only facility of its kind, was opened in Langley. We had to learn everything from scratch. This is not something that you can just Google and look up how to breed spotted owls. It's all brand new information. Beep, 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 beep. Usually they produce one or two chicks a season, but this year, four. To ensure their survival, the eggs are removed from the nest at the bottom of a hollowed-out stump. We can actually reach in behind the nest from outside of the enclosure and grab the eggs like 
without the owl even seeing. It's replaced with a sensor egg that records temperature and humidity data that can be replicated in an incubator. Ten days after they hatch, it's back to the nest where the little sensor egg is replaced with a large chick. We'll give them back a 100-gram little, little monster, we call them their little dinosaurs. Twelve years after it all began, they're almost ready to start releasing the owls. But where? Each pair requires 30 square kilometers of old growth habitat. The province has protected about 300,000 hectares of habitat, so that's enough for about 100 pairs. It will be a victory not only for northern spotted owls, but for the entire ecosystem. If we can say, well, we're putting a spotted owl there, so that's 30 square kilometers of these 200-year-old forests, and every other animal and plant that lives in there is now protected because of the spotted owl. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. On the topic of flying into the wild blue yonder, a different story off in the distance, though, if you can see through the windshield there, a pilot's bird's eye view of a Canadian tornado after the forecast. Yikes. Mm-hmm. All right, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us with a look at our weather forecast. A little bit of a change, Christy, but nothing like that. Nothing like that. Yes, exactly. So we are starting to see some high-level cloud across the region right now. It was gorgeous today. We hit 21 degrees at the airport. A few areas a little cooler, 19, 18 degrees, but certainly pleasant. And in the low, 20, low to mid-20s all across the province in the south, uh, teens across the north. Now, with the change does mean rain, but I urge you to remember it's not going to be the rain that is going to be the major factor. This is how much we could see over the next 24 hours and right through to the end of the day on Friday we could see mm, up to maybe 18 in areas like Squamish. More so the concern will be the chill in the air and you probably felt it today. There was a cool breeze. Well here's a look at your temperatures for the next three days. 16, then 15, then 15. Well below seasonal for this time of year but it looks like we'll climb out of it just in time for the weekend. But you'll need your sweater and we haven't used sweaters in quite a few days now. I wanted to show you this. So as we head into the next few days, hopefully it improves our fire situation, but we've jumped 13 new fires in the last two days. We're now at 42. A significant amount of them have been person caused. In fact, seven or eight, I think. I think I counted eight were person caused, but a lot of them because of lightning as well. So we're really hoping that this change means a significant difference because we're still at a moderate to high level across most of the province in terms of that fire danger rating. Here's a look at your forecast. Across the north, we will continue with some showers as well, but also a risk of thunderstorms through the central interior, the Caribou region as well. Big change for areas across the south with more cloud tomorrow, but the bulk of the rainfall, which isn't much, will fall across the south coast, and it will likely develop through the morning hours. So it may still be dry when you wake up, but then through the morning that will develop and will remain unsettled, I think potentially right through until Saturday morning, and then we start to see things clear out a little bit. I want to show you our weather window for today. I'm not sure where this is. I did send Peter a note to find out where, but it is in the south coast. Great shot of an eagle flying in. Thanks to Peter for that one. Cool. It looks like he picked oh, up a wow. shell or something. Very cool. He has now, a lot of videos like that. It's yes, right so you see him. He's yeah. a regular contributor on Twitter. Now, before I pass it back to you, I want to tell you about the BCAA Play Here contest. It is actually giving away three play space revitalizations worth up to $100,000 to each. Here's a look at the first two finalists. 
Tillet Inco School, which is a community in Alexis Creek. They're hoping to actually replace the old broken down playground as it's the only play space for the children in the area. And the school at South Canoe School in the Shushwap, they're hoping to create a new kitchen classroom to support their growing food program, which is a, a really good one. And you can also vote for your community that you would like to see win this play space. There's actually going to be giving away three play spaces and uh, all you have to do to vote is go to globalnews.ca slash contests. All right. Love Lots that. Worthy contestants. Thanks, Christy. You bet. An Ontario pilot captures some aerial video of a rare Canadian tornado in the Ottawa area. Oh, yeah. I'm filming like... Jonathan Hilaire was flying home from an air show when he was forced to divert his landing due to bad weather. With blue skies overhead, he managed to take out his phone and document a tornado off in the distance before landing safely at an airport nearby. Environment Canada says the tornado was an EF-1 with peak wind speeds of 135 kilometers per hour. It was on the ground for at least 25 kilometers, damaging homes, roads and businesses and injuring one person. Quite a view of it from up there, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. It's really rare to have a tornado in the Ottawa area, and they've had three in the past nine months. Wow. It doesn't Very count odd. as distracted flying, by the way. Squire Barnes here with sports, starting out with a literary reference. <laughs> Which I don't note. get to do very often. No, you don't. I you don't get to use well. the word esteemed very often. <laughs> but I will right now. Esteemed writer and poet Gertrude Stein once said of Oakland, California, where she was brought up, there is no there there. That, of course, was before Oakland got any sports teams. But right now, the there isn't much as there as it usually is when it comes to the Golden State Warriors roster. While the Toronto Raptors are all pretty much still standing, the Warriors will be without Kevin Durant once again for Game 3 tomorrow. Backup center Kevin Looney is now out for the rest of the series with a broken collarbone. And Clay Thompson, the other splash brother, is a game-time decision because of a sore hamstring he picked up in Game 2. But he says he would have to be in severe pain not to play Game 3. It'll be a game-time decision. But for me personally, it'd be hard to see me not playing. So hopefully I'll feel much better tomorrow and uh, be a go for tip-off. Because um, I hate missing games. I really do. Bruins captain Zidane Ochera has a broken jaw after taking a puck to the face last night. It hit his stick and then ricocheted into him. He likely won't play game five on Thursday. Series tied to two unless he can be fitted with a protective shield it makes you wonder when you see this will there ever come a day when nhl players will have to wear the full face mask that'll keep that from happening that's for sure on a football team the offensive line has two very big jobs one they have to push other big men out of the way so a running back can go as far as possible before people jump on him and two they have to protect the quarterback from harm Offensive linemen are like the Secret Service, but instead of guns, what they use to keep their man safe is arms, hands, feet, and at least 300 pounds of bulk each. When it comes to the BC Lions, keeping Mike Riley upright is the number one priority this season. 
And that responsibility belongs to these guys. You look across at our entire offensive package, um, nothing happens down the field if your big guys up front don't give you the time. We got some of the nastiest, most physical offensive linemen in the league. And honestly, I had to talk more about them because they really are what's going to make it happen for us. Too much cash, too much cash on the table, too much money over here, man. What I'm talking about? We are here balling. The big boys will need to be balling every snap because the Lions don't have a plan B when it comes to their quarterback. It's why GM Ed Hervey invested heavily on his offensive line, and we do mean heavily. Well, I mean, you, when you're investing in, when you invest in the quarterback of Mike Riley's caliber, you got to protect him because he can't throw it from his back. We expect him to be a good, solid group and play well together. Playing well together means full-on nastiness by a collection of guys who will hand out just as many bruises as they received in the trenches. Think of this group as a solid brick wall, except one with hand extensions capable of delivering serious stiff arm action. And that's how I've been taught to play football, and I think that's how you play the offensive line. You know, we don't have many accolades, we don't get our name in the paper and all that, but all we can do is be accountable to our teammates and play to the whistle and play hard and be there for our guys, you know. We're one of the biggest people on the field, and we got to act that way accordingly and, you know, take care of our guys. That's as important a group uh, to have chemistry as, as anything in professional sports. Those five guys work as one. Um, they got a lot on their shoulders physically and mentally. They really are the reason that you go or you don't go. Like I said, without them, you can't do anything. doesn't matter what kind of weapons you have on the outside. You know, if you don't have time to get on the ball, then nothing good's going to happen. And then on top of that, there's always you know, keeping you upright. You know, you don't like to take hits that you don't have to take, and, and those guys take a lot of pride in that. Rafael Nadal, the king of clay, the king of France, when it comes to the French Open, taking on uh, Kei Nishikori, quarterfinal action. Nishikori had had two straight five-set matches, so he was a bit burnt out, and this is not the guy you want to play on clay when you're not feeling your best. Uh, straight set win for Nadal, 12th time he is going to the semifinals at the French Open as you watch him. Look at this. No. <laughs> now that's a backhand. Uh-huh. Uh, ball game. He's moving on. Who will he take on in the semis? Will it be Roger Federer or his good friend Stan Wawrinka, both from Switzerland? Federer. Backhand. Even Warinka says it's good. Thumbs up. Think that backhand was good? Try this one. Federer near court. Little drop shot. That doesn't fool Warinka. That gets him. That's incredible. And Federer's what? 73 now? Like that guy never ages. He would win it in four sets. But he has never beaten Nadal at the French Open. He's 0-5 against Rafael. They'll meet in the semis. Okay, some baseball. Aaron Boone and the Yankees are in Toronto. That's Freddie Galvis. And that's over the wall. And that counts, too, as Toronto goes up 3-2 in the fifth. And then Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Guerrero, base hit. That's the base hit. That drives in a run. 4-3 now in the eighth inning, Blue Jays leading the Bronx Bombers. A busker on Vancouver Island has been silenced. He's been playing his accordion in Comox for years, but recently was told to stop because he didn't have a permit. But when he tried to get one and play by the rules, he was denied. Kylie Stanton explains why. 
To play the accordion and play it well requires a lot of practice. To perform is a skill few have mastered. It took a long time, almost 10 years to get it all perfect. Johnny Cunningham has been busking here in Comox for the past four years, after work, on weekends, and any chance he gets in between. And I play all kinds of music, every genre you could think of. But now, instead of filling his days with those tunes, he's been forced to go silent. He said, you have to leave because you don't have a license. Cunningham went to the town hall to get one, but was denied. A first for Comox. According to staff, there have been roughly a dozen complaints in regards to Cunningham's music here in Marina Park over the past few years, all saying it's too loud for their liking. Comox even went as far as to take the unprecedented step of banning the instrument. Don't think accordion is noise. Accordion is music. It's not the first time a busker has been told to tone it down. The jazz crooner Babe Cole was told she had to perform unplugged in order to be in compliance with city bylaws. She took the city of North Vancouver to court over the issue. And Cunningham plans to do the same. It seems he has the support of the community behind him. I thought it was great listening to the, the accordion and sometimes they have the piano down here that pe people play. And I'm surprised that he isn't able to come down here anymore. But if he continues to play and the complaints roll in, he could face fines of $200 a piece, a price he's just not willing to pay. Because I'm, I'm not trying to do anything wrong. I just like to play my music for a couple hours. It actually, it bothers me quite a bit, actually. It hurts. Kylie Stanton, Global News. Comox. I feel like we need to hear him play Rihanna or... Um, so we get a real... Cardi, Cardi B or something like that. Something no, that super would modern. be stretching. <laughs> I don't know if he can. Maybe he can. Shoot us a Twitter video if you got, if you got it or Instagram. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, the change is coming, isn't it? Change is coming, yes. Yeah, so it'll be the chill in the air you'll feel for the next three days. Look at that. Below seasonal at 15 and 16 degrees. The rain will be on and off and light. I think it'll be more so overcast, but uh, the sun should return in time for the weekend. All right, good timing. Mm -hmm. Thank you. That's all the time we have for tonight. Thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good one, everyone. Good night.